Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Uh, Hamilton over the years has had a number of ultra low cost airlines come and unfortunately in many cases go. Uh, Swoop has been there now. Well, we've learned that uh, Swoop is going to be absorbed by WestJet, which means in all likelihood, we don't know exactly how everything is going to play, but in all likelihood, things are going to be different at Hamilton. We don't know whether we're going to still have that kind of low-cost carrier, low-price carrier. In fact, uh, at The Spectator, um, Fallon Hewitt, who wrote a piece in the paper today, she it, the, the Swoop will remain in play with the prices until October 28. Well, she went and looked. If you go from Ham- Hamilton to Abbotsford, B.C., leaving on a Friday in mid-September, so before this, $175. After October 28, same flight, $748. We don't know if that's going to change or what. Let me bring in Marvin Ryder, though, from the DeGroot School of Business. Uh, Marvin, like many people, but more than most people, has followed this and followed the business side of this, Marvin. This is this is sort of an ongoing, repeating, recurring Groundhog Day kind of story, isn't it? That we get a low-cost carrier and then later on we lose a low-cost carrier. Yeah. Well, I understand why you're saying that, and most of the low-cost carriers that we've seen come and then go failed. Uh, they just failed. Now, how do you fail? Well, there's, there's two reasons you fail. You're either not generating enough revenue or your costs aren't low enough to sustain yourself given the revenue that you're getting, and that's what normally happens. Now, the case of Swoop is different. The Swoop isn't failing. In fact, its business model is very successful, but... As part of its business model, it needed to pay its employees at a different, i.e. lower rate, than they were paying WestJet employees. And in the last round of negotiations with the pilots, the pilots said, no, 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 no. Same work, equal value. The pilots of Swoop need to be paid the same amount as a WestJet pilot. Uh, and once that got passed and approved, then your costs go up. You can't sustain a low-cost model. So it isn't so much that Swoop failed because it was a bad idea or poorly executed. It failed because it couldn't keep those costs down thanks to the pilots' union going forward. And you're absolutely right. What we know is that Swoop, with these ultra-low-cost fares, will be there until October 28th. What's going to happen October 29th, we don't really know Swoop has 16 planes that will not be sold. They'll be repainted and added to the WestJet fleet of 180 planes. So clearly, Swoop was a a minor part of the WestJet empire. Employees are not going anywhere. They're not being laid off or fired. They're going to be added into the mix. And what WestJet has said, even though they haven't worked out their routes and their schedules and all those things going forward, is we're still going to be covering these destinations And what they've said, and this is kind of a cute way of saying it, is that we're still going to offer you a range of fair options. (laughs) But just exactly what those options are and what do they include. Now, in the case of Swoop, you know, you paid your money, you got a chair and a seatbelt, and that was it. If you wanted to carry something on, well, you paid for that. Oh, you want a drink? You pay for that. I swear to God, if you wanted to use the bathroom, maybe you had to pay for it, too. Um... Uh, now, it's quite conceivable WestJet could offer an ultra-low fare on its planes in the same way. You know, you get a chair and a seat belt, and that's it. If you want anything more, you pay. 
And there may be people who say, well, in that case, I'd rather pay a slightly higher fare and get more things included in the base. We're just not quite sure where they're going to go with it. And, and, and look, I, I'm glad, first of all, that you clarified this is not a failure. Like, unlike some of the other ones, this is not a failure. It is a change in the, in the bottom line, really, of, uh, again, with employees. But if that's the case, Marvin, if we now are at a point where, and we saw, you know, the WestJet pilots, they got a nice healthy raise, and other airlines are asking for now or got the same, they're looking for or got the same, is there any realistic way then that going forward, that we could have an ultra low cost carrier if what we're seeing is all of the employee costs across the board pretty much are going up. That would seem to almost eliminate the possibility of another one of these down the road, no? Well, let me again break that into two chunks. So we've been talking about Swoop. Now, there are other ultra low cost carriers out there, and some of them even come out of Hamilton Airport. So there's something called Canada Jetways. There's something called Flair. There's something called Lynx Airlines. And I believe there's a new one that's going to debut in Hamilton. I think it's called Next. I'm not quite sure I've got the right name for it there. So there are still people playing in this ultra-low-cost segment, and they are not influenced by the pilot settlement in the case of WestJet. So they, too, have been able to keep their costs down. And I know people who have flown Flair and have said, you know, it's a, for, the, for uh, the price, it's a really great fare and gets me to where I want to go. Now, the question, though, for WestJet is, where is this leading? And I, and I don't really know. And I think for the average Hamiltonian, a bigger question to look for, not this year, not next year, but three or four years from now, is Sunwing. Now, Sunwing is a charter carrier. It does a lot of flights out of Hamilton to sun destinations, whether that's in Mexico or the Caribbean or in the southern United States. But WestJet just recently bought Sunwing, and uh, they were not part of the negotiations with the pilots, so their differential pay structure is in place. So nothing's going to happen to Sunwing for another year or two or three, but I wonder if the next time the pilots meet, they're going to want to change the cost structures at Sunwing, and then what will that do to Sunwing activities? So, you know, always some upheaval in this industry. Uh, it's not just flights. I'd, I'd love to hear your thought because there, there's an argument now to be made that people are either willing to pay really little if they want to go and, you know, go, go dollar store, or they're willing to spend more to get luxury. Is there still, do you believe, in this market in particular, a, a place for that middle ground where you're not, re- it's not, you're not getting all the bells and whistles like you might get, but you're getting absolutely almost nothing, as you say, except the belt in the seat. Um, is there a middle ground that could work? <coughs> so, <coughs> I would excuse me while I'm coughing in your ear, my apologies. I wouldn't call that the middle ground. The middle ground would be a standard economy fare. I just recently was in the uh, Baltic nations, and I went over flying economy, and in my case, I got a meal on the intercontinental flight, and I got a checked bag, and that, that would be the middle ground. And there's lots of people paying for that middle ground. The question really is, this ultra-low-cost um, uh, discount airline, it has succeeded in parts of the world. In Europe, you think of Ryanair as a great example of this, or EasyJet, where uh, people who are just going away for a weekend, I'll just take my clothes and a backpack and you know stick it on, and away we go. It's worked very well there. It's worked well in parts of the United States. I could argue that Southwest is an ultra-low-cost carrier there. And so we actually have had some success in Canada with these ultra-low-cost carriers. 
to, again, to go back to your point, we went through a situation where we had 20 years and 20 failures, sort of one a year in this segment, and it didn't seem to catch on. But we've actually had stability now, and most of these ultra-low-cost carriers are now been around for five years, six years. So there are, they are showing us there, and there are some consumers who, who that they say, this is what I want. I just want a utility fare, and you'll still have some of those options. Now, also keep in mind that flight you were talking about flying out of Hamilton flew you to Abbotsford, B.C., which is not Vancouver. It's, you still have a way to go if you're trying to go to Vancouver. And I think, again, that's interesting that some people were prepared to fly, let's say, an hour away from Vancouver to save a few bucks. Um, was that offset by their transportation charges at the other end? I'm not sure. So the key is to give consumers choice. Consumers are still going to have some of that, but it's no longer going to include Swoop, which was WestJet's experiment in this area. Yeah, and Abbotsford Airport, we were just there a little while ago. It is the Hamilton Airport of the Vancouver area. It is. Um, it works very well. It is very easy to get in and out of, but it is no bells and whistles. It is the local low fare airport basically and it's fine and it works great it's just as you say it's not you you still are not in vancouver you need a rental car or an uber or something you're but it, you know what all these little things to save a few bucks for sure uh marvin Ryder, thanks for doing this really appreciate you jumping in today happy to be with you you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml Last segment, we were talking about the body cameras on youth soccer referees. We were um, we were just waiting for Neil Lumsden, who is the Minister of Tourism, Culture, and Sport, to be able to get out of an event that he was in so he could join us. He joins us now from Hamilton East Stony Creek MP MPP. Pardon me, uh, Neil Lumsden. Thanks for doing this. Hey Scott, and I apologize for being late, but it's always good to uh, be in the in the riding and, and celebrate a, a reopening, especially of a dentist clinic. So. Yeah, it was it, it was great. It was absolutely great. But my apologies. No, no worries. I understand completely. Um, l- listen, we were talking about this idea of Ontario soccer giving kids body cams now to wear. Uh, you've been in sports for a long time. Uh, I've been in sports for a long time. H- have we jumped a Rubicon here? Have we lost our minds completely that this is what we have to do at this point? Well, I mean, first off, I, you know, in typical in sport, uh, people are always looking for solutions, whether it's strategic or you know, at any level, and trying to make things better. And, I, and I, I give them a ton of credit for thinking about this and thinking of and, 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 ha- but the, and, and then putting it in place. But the fact that they have to do that... That's what I mean. Is, ...is, from a cultural perspective in sport, it's just unbelievable. I, I mean, look, I've coached for a long time, and you and I have known each other for a long time, and I've, I know a lot of officials in sport. But I'm going to tell you just a quick story, which really sort of brought this to light to me. And this is a bunch of years ago. My son was took a course in uh, refereeing, uh, I think it was soccer. And, you know, he was 13 or 14 years old, so he was refereeing probably 9- and 10-year-olds. And um, this coach was giving him huge grief. I went to pick him up afterwards, and he said, I, he looked flustered. I said, you all right? And he said, yeah, I'm fine, Dad. It's just that that, that one coach over there was on me all game long i said oh, okay well would you like me to go talk to him he says no 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 and he's pointing over to this guy who's now taking his jacket off and underneath his jacket he had a referee jersey so he was doing the next set of games so there's a guy who should know better than anybody else to of what an official plays and the role he plays 
and not to harass because nothing's perfect. And from that point on, and I've got some great friends that are officials, and I've got into you know pretty good discussions with them over the years in football and hockey, but it was always respectful. And if parents at this point don't and haven't figured it out yet that when you go to a game and watch your daughter or son or combination of playing sport, I don't care what sport it is, you're there to support your kids, support that team. Because in some ways, the last thing you should want to do is embarrass one of your children because you're acting up on a sideline, especially in a soccer situation where it's wide open. You can get so close to officials, unlike hockey, and football's the same. So, you know, for me, it, it just it fires me up and it disappoints me. And we need to get back to supporting youth in soccer, youth in sport, and letting, making sure they're having some fun, and they're getting better, and they're learning some really good life lessons. As parents, we need to back off and put our egos in our pocket and let the kids play. Because I've said this before, at the end of the day, if there are no officials, there are no games. What I don't know what the government's role in this is, if at all, at this point. I, this is an Ontario soccer um, plan. But could you see at some point this becoming something that legislation gets brought in for? I'm not talking about legislating body cameras to be worn. Different cities have bylaws as far as, you know, misbehavior and being banished from fields or whatever else. Could you ever see a government level involvement to protect referees or to legislate good behavior from parents and adults? Well, I, no, I, I can't see that. What I can see, and I've seen, and I've heard of this before, that minor sports organizations get to a point where they parents have to sign a code of conduct. And that code of conduct is based on coming to games, and if you are seen to be acting inappropriately and speaking to people, whether it's an official, a coach, or young kids, you get a warning, and if it happens again, you're gone. So like a player getting thrown out of a game for inappropriate actions, no matter what the sport is, and we're not afraid to do that, then we should do the same thing or think about it for parents. And maybe when someone tells you, yeah, I'm sorry, you can't come back to the rink and watch your son or daughter play, because you've been, you know, you, you've got a, a, a two-game penalty, if you will, to get a hold of yourself and realize why you should be there. Maybe that's what it's going to take because, you know, the, I mean, the, the fact that we're even talking about it, Scott, I mean, every once in a while, but the, some of the stories I've heard and what, uh, what I understand, the story that ignited all this, I, I don't get it. I, and I guess that's why it, it upsets me so much because I don't understand. And... You know, frankly, you're not going to find a lot of people that are that's more competitive than I am from a player perspective and a coaching perspective. But I would no more think of harassing and belittling an official or another player. Yeah, and, and but Neil, just before Neil, just before you came on, I was using the example, and, and honestly, I'm pointing at myself here because when my son was playing hockey, I I can tell you that. There were a couple times when something happened and you go, yay, or, you know, or, you know, that was a trip or whatever else. And I understand, and I'm not defending that, but sports is emotional. I get that you can have an instant reaction. What I don't understand is when people then go from there 
and then going, okay, let it go to, as you describe the harassment or the threatening or the taking it where they, where they don't let it go. That, that to me, I, I get that people are going to scream something and, and, you know, once in a while, and again, not defending it, but to me, it's when you get into the point that the official now feels either they're in danger or someone could do something or they're just being ridden like the example you gave. That's where I just don't get it. Well, and here's the other side. And, you know, I think in general conversation, when you talk about it, when, when people talk about officials, they immediately go to adults because we think officials, you know, officials in whether university or pro sport or high-level sport, we have young people on the field that have decided if they're not going to play in the game, they still want to be part of sport, so they become officials. And if we want to, can you, again, it boggles my mind that an adult would sit and scream and yell at a 15-year-old kid who maybe missed a trip on their son or daughter and lose it so badly that, it ends up in something like this. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah, no, that's and, the thing. That's the thing. I, an immediate emotional reaction for a split second. Uh, once again, I'm going to say I don't defend it, but I understand it. But it's the ongoing stuff that I just, it's like, where where have you, where is that okay? In anything in society, where would that be okay? Especially with kids. Well, you know, my dad used to say this, and it's true. And I like you. I've gotten fired up, and I, and I have apologized to an official after game as a coach, not as an athlete. Uh, but my dad used to, used to use this expression, civility is not a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. We, not, we need to start in general treating people better. And people in general. But if anyone out there thinks it's okay to be ripping a young guy or a young girl that's officiating any sport – uh, is as a parent have the impulse to go over and say, "Hey, look, like slow down, back off a little bit, yeah. like, uh, take it easy." That, maybe that's what it's going to take, Scott. Maybe it will. Maybe some evidence and some people being on TV for the news looking like morons. Maybe that'll do it. Uh, that is the Minister of Tourism, <laughs> Culture, and Sport, Neil Lumsden, the MPP from Hamilton East Stony Creek. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I read this story. I I always, or very often, anyway, I can't say always, I very often read my next guest's website. Uh, It's called a Journal of Musical Things because it has great stories on it that are always interesting. And this one, I had heard about this and then he wrote about it and I said, okay, we got to have him on to talk about this. Um... Paul McCartney is coming out with a new song, but not just him. The Beatles have a new song coming out, which would seem to be quite a trick considering half of the Beatles, three-fifths, if you want to include, um, what's the name, the piano player, uh, three-fifths, half the Beatles are gone. And uh, that makes it hard to put out new music when many of the members of the band are not there. However, we are now in 2023. And, um, AI, artificial intelligence is now available to us. And that is what is going to be used here to bring John Lennon back to life. Let me bring in Alan Cross. He is uh, the guy behind a journal of musical things. Uh, we love having him on. Alan, how are you tonight? Good, good. And help me out here. I am having the absolute ultimate brain fart. Who was the piano player for the Beatles? Billy Preston. Thank you. Uh, 
How, how in the world could I not remember that? Anyway, thank you. That's see, that's why you're here. You're the you're the guy. Um, so I, I'm reading this story and I'm thinking to myself. On the one hand. I'm really excited and happy and thrilled that we're going to have new Beatles music. And on the other hand, I'm thinking, but is it new Beatles music? Where do you stand on this artificial intelligence to pr- pr- create new music? Okay, well, wait, we, we have to talk about this specifically in terms of the Beatles. Because okay. it's a larger discussion. In this particular case, let's just go back and, and see what we've got. In 1978... In his apartment at the Dakota in, in New York, John Lennon recorded a bunch of songs on a cassette using a boombox, and he was playing the piano. And later, Yoko Ono gave him that cassette. It was marked for Paul. Two of those songs were reworked by the surviving members of the Beatles, which would be, have been Paul and George Harrison, who was still alive, and Ringo Starr, for the Beatles anthology in 1995 and 1996. This song was attempted during that time, but it was a bit of a garbage recording in the sense that there was some electrical interference coming from somewhere in John's apartment, and there was a bad buzz, and they just couldn't actually make it work. So they shelved the song. George Harrison didn't want to do with it, and Paul uh, didn't want anything to do with it. Paul McCartney says the Beatles were a democracy, so that particular track was shelved. Fast forward to the Beatles Get Back documentary with Peter Jackson. And Peter Jackson employed some really cool artificial intelligence technology to take the original mono soundtrack that the Beatles used to record the audio when they were making that film back in 1959. And he turned it into something absolutely, utterly spectacular for the 21st century. It was not only in stereo, it was in uh, surround sound 5.1, Dolby Atmos, whatever it was. It, uh, it, it sounded bigger, better, cooler, all that stuff. So McCartney, who was working with Jackson, of course, on this particular documentary, heard about this technology, saw what it could do, heard what it could do, and now he has the opportunity to go back to that cassette and attempt, or has attempted, apparently successfully, to rework this song, which features John's real voice, uh, and put everything back together so that we have the Beatles again. And he's calling this the final Beatles record. So what we have here is more or less a 21st century high-tech example of bringing a demo out of the vaults and charting it up with new technology to make it sound acceptable for this day and age. So it, so a little different. Okay, so it, this is a little different from, you know, we had the, the story uh, a couple of months ago where someone made a Drake album without Drake having anything to do with it. Different from that, clearly, because this is from the voice, originally from the soul, I guess, of Paul McCartney, or of John Lennon, pardon me. So so there is Beatle juice, <laughs> sorry, in in this song to begin with. Yes. Now, I'm not sure about the George Harrison parts. It could be that they will go back to the sessions in the middle 90s and take George's recordings, his voice tracks, from that session, which again, it's actually George, and made it with Paul and Ringo and whatever else they they plan to do. now, I should point out that we think it's this song called Now and Then. Paul didn't actually mention it, but that's the one that we're, that people are pretty confident that, it's, that it is. 
So we would have the voices of then-living Beatles brought back out of the archives and put together with the voices and playing of two living Beatles to basically bring the band back together. This this isn't like taking artificial intelligence and inventing John Lennon's right, voice. Or right, right. Okay, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a little different than that. So, I mean, essentially, I remember watching something, uh, when was it, years ago, where Celine Dion did a duet with Elvis. And, I mean, it's essentially that. You're essentially just taking modern technology to clean up what's there in this particular case. Yeah, and that's been going back for, uh, you know, for years. Many examples, years. sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the big one was uh, Natalie Cole singing with her father. A great example, absolutely, of course. And we've even got now a little bit different because they're all still alive, but we even have this now um, digital hologram ABBA show that plays everywhere. I mean, I guess it's kind of the same thing. You can do whatever you want if you're... Uh, if if it's already been created. Now, the question, though, becomes, and here's where this becomes the really interesting discussion, I think. So you, you make a very valid point. This is a Beatles song more than m- other things that you would come up with. There are, though, I bet you, I, I remember hearing a long time ago that I think it was Prince, although it could be someone else, had thousands of snippets of songs, riffs or choruses or verses or something in a vault somewhere, just recordings of it. Theoretically, could you not now, if you were the estate of Prince or whoever that was, could you not essentially be putting out new Prince music using AI to fill in the gaps forever? Uh, yes. And you can bet that they're thinking about it. Uh, they, he had a vault at Paisley Park Studios in Minneapolis, and it was loaded with stuff that he never finished or had finished and shelved. And there were some legalities that had to be worked out. And uh, eventually, they, uh, they they were released, um, or, or they were worked out, and, and some stuff has already started coming out. Now, we, we've seen this also with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, what Jimi Hendrix put out, what, three albums? But he put up, he's put out like 40 since he's died. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. So, so there, this sort of audio archaeology, this uh, audio exhumations, if you want to call it, is, is, is not new. It's just that we have new tools to do it. It, it almost, as you're describing it, the thing that's crossing my mind is that scene in Jurassic Park where they're explaining how they take the frog DNA to fill the gaps where the dino DNA doesn't exist anymore. You're basically doing that. You're taking something that was real but not ready and using technology to fill those gaps. Yep, and we're going to see more of this. Uh, going back to ABBA, remember that, that the ABBA avatars that we see on stage were created using... Uh, motion capture suits that the actual band members wore and had to go through all the moves and dances and had them recorded, and then those were turned into the the uh, the avatars. So, you know, again, we're going to see a lot of this sort of stuff. We might as well get used to it. Mm-hmm. There are going to be lots of issues regarding, you know, ethics, copyright, legalities, permissions, uh, you know, and, and, and there's going to be some downright evil use of this stuff. But this is this always happens with technology. There's always going to be bad apples. But ultimately, I think this is going to be an interesting tool that people will use to create new and interesting music. We may not like all of it, but uh, you know, we could talk about at length how this could turn out to be 
of the next big revolution in music. Just, you know, if we go back to, to the early 70s you know, with drum machines and sampling, they were going to be the end of the world. Added uh, synthesizers, again, the end of the world because no longer were you going to have real musicians playing real strings. You were never going to have real drummers playing real drums. You were only going to be tearing apart old songs and reconstructing them into semi-new songs like Frankenstein Monsters, Death of Creativity. Well, we got past all that stuff, and I would imagine we're entering the same sort of era with artificial intelligence. Yeah, the, 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 the question and all of the stuff that you've talked about so far, all that we've talked about so far has been based upon music that the artists created just maybe didn't finish, just needed, as I say, to fill those gaps. But I, I also imagine now we see this with um, it, when we're doing GPS, for example, like w- people whose voices are on GPS machines as you're driving around have not literally spoken the name of every single street on planet Earth. The machines can take sounds and noises and words and make it work for those things. And sometimes when you have a street name, you can hear that they didn't say that name. It's been pieced together. But could we see, going back to John Lennon, could we see down the road when all the Beatles are gone, if someone who holds the estate says, you know, I need to make some more money here, you dump all of John Lennon's, a whole bunch of all the songs he's ever sung into a computer and all the songs Paul McCartney sung, and they could start singing things they never sung before. I'll give you an example. Uh, this week we learned that Meta, the parent company of Facebook, is training their own music creation AI, and what they did was teach it using 20,000 hours of copyrighted music. So yeah, it's coming. Is it, if it's good, and we don't know it will be, but let's say that Alan Cross, let's say you're sitting at home, you are one of the music, you know, you you have a discerning and a discriminating ear for music, and you're sitting at home, and you hear a song that suddenly you go, that's pretty good. And then at the end you say, that was created by artificial intelligence with no artists actually involved. Will you say, I'm good with that, or will you say, I kind of feel cheated and a little dirty for liking that? It depends on what it is. Uh, I think human beings are have, have really good authenticity detectors, so you'll be able to find really reasonable facsimiles, really good facsimiles of you know, the creation of a, of, of a new song. But uh, again, you know, if you're going to sing about heartache, if you're going to sing about divorce, if you're going to sing about you know something that is truly, truly human, artificial intelligence is only mimicry. It is not the thing that will necessarily sound human. So it, it, it you know, this technology is still the worst it's ever going to be. It's only going to get better. So I may be eating my words in three or four or five, ten years, whatever it is. But I, I think that we, one of the things about music, and we're talking about popular songs. We're talking about songs that have rawness, uh, little imperfections in them. Uh, we can tell when something is too perfect, and we, we, we may end up rejecting it. I mean, there are, there are lots of uh, genres that wouldn't work. I mean, I, I can't imagine... Again, maybe my imagination is just a little weak, but I can't imagine AI coming up with some proper modern jazz because that's all about improvisation. It's all about feeling. That's all about, you know, things happening in the moment. And while you could probably come up with something that sounded reasonably similar, 
it wouldn't feel the same. Yeah, and and it, that's a, such an interesting point because again, I, I want to talk about like you being someone who listens and studies and gets music. I, I to me, you would be kind of the example of. Uh, let's use an example of a wine connoisseur. I don't have the wine connoisseur's palate, so I will taste a bottle of a glass of wine, probably not the whole bottle. And you know, it 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 might be good, it might not be, but I probably couldn't tell you whether it's a ten dollar bottle or a three hundred dollar bottle. It just tastes good or it doesn't. So I think a lot of people are probably in that same spot with music. Not you, but I think a lot of people will simply say, "Oh, that sounds pretty good." And I don't know whether the feeling thing, if that's going to matter to everybody. Well, we're, we're in that case right now. Uh, we, we've been in that, that situation for, for, for decades, ever since popular music came out. I mean, it, it's such an objective thing. If, if you, everybody has their different thresholds for what's good. And there's always going to be people who hear something that you and I would consider to be, you know, paint-by-numbers stuff. They're going to think it's the greatest song ever. So uh, we're going to see more of it. That's all it is. Could we then... And again, using the example, I mean, look, the, the, the Beatles, I don't know if there's going to be a market for the Beatles once the people who l- grew up with the Beatles are gone. I, I don't know if there's going to be a market for new Beatles music, but let's say that that generation has another 20 years. Could we see 25, 30, I don't know. Could we see the estate of these people pumping out new Beatles albums every six months just because, hey, why not? People will buy Beatles music if it's new. I, you know, already we're seeing pushback against what Paul's doing. Uh, People want the Beatles to be left alone. They were of a time and place. They were perfect. Don't mess with them. And I can't, listen, it depends on who who, who gets, uh, ultimately who is in charge of the Beatles catalog and the Beatles estate. Uh, You know, 50, 60 years down the road, they're thinking maybe completely flipped on its head and somebody will do it. Right now, uh, I just can't see it happening. The Beatles had 250-ish songs over the course of their career. Um, that's all there is. And people know that's all there is. And if you start messing around with fake Beatles, I mean, we, we went through this with the Beatlemania thing uh, in the early part of the 1990s, or 1980s. Uh, so... Right now, no, but never say never. And again, sorry to keep using metaphors or similes here, but I mean, I there's a limited supply of diamonds on the earth, which makes them have value, but now they've created fake diamonds by just applying pressure, and you can it, they're not quite as expensive, but you can get something that looks and sounds almost, look well, not sounds, looks almost exactly the same, and you really, really, really have to know what you're looking at to discern the difference. I just, I, I just... Alan, my, my fear with this is there is a possibility for an awful lot of money to be made if it's plausible enough and it sounds like it's the Beatles or any other band. I mean, pick whoever else you want, Elvis or Rush or whomever, there's a lot of money potentially to be made here. And if there's money, there will be attempts to do it. I think you're right. We'll see what happens. But uh, whether the public will uh, fall for it, that's another story. A last thing on this one, and this is really not a music thing per se, but do you think the the reason for the end of the artist would have an effect on this? It may be a weird question, but if an artist died tragically, John Lennon, for example, we all know how he died, or you know any of the other people, even if they died young, you know Jimi Hendrix or whomever else, as opposed to someone who like Frank Sinatra who lived to a you know an old age, do you think that 
how someone dies would affect whether we're open to the idea? Maybe. Um, that's a good question. Again, because it sounds like we're taking advantage almost of someone who oh, had a tragedy. But we, we already do that. The moment uh, somebody dies, uh, all of a sudden their streaming numbers spike and record labels put out greatest hits records and retrospectives and tributes. So it's, <laughs> you're right. It's, it'll, it'll, it'll just be more of the same yeah. using different tools. Yeah, you're right. Well, what did you say? Three Jimi Hendrix albums and 40 since he's been dead. I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment to put out that many when you're dead. Uh, yeah, but who, who knew he made so much, uh, he left behind so much music. <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of them. And, and th- this is the other thing we got to go. This is the other thing guaranteed. We are going to over the years now, especially now with modern technology where, you know, you talked about John Lennon had to do this on a cassette tape. Now somebody's going to die. Some big artist is going to die and their computer is going to have a thousand pieces of songs on it, sitting right there, digital, ready to go. I mean, it's inevitable. Oh, yes. Uh, the cleaning up will take much, much less technology yeah. because you'll have something in, in high-fidelity audio to, to work with. I mean, right now, uh, we are going to get, at some point over the next couple of years, uh, some new Soundgarden material because Chris Cornell left a bunch of voice track, uh, vocal tracks behind on his laptop. Yeah, no, it, it's, you know, and now that we can do it with technology, it's, it, it is, uh, it's that thing where, you know, if, if you can... Why do we not want to? Well, you bring in morals and ethics and all the rest, but if you can, it becomes pretty tempting to do, and that's uh, especially when money is involved. Alan Cross, we love having you on the show. Thanks for doing this today, as always. You're welcome. Bye. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.